O Lord, our God, you have made us and we are yours. And now here we are in our ignorance, determining to talk about you with knowledge and we recognize our need for help. And everything we say, Lord, is only an arrow pointing to things that are too great for us to understand. But get us pointed in the right direction this morning, please, by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. So good to uh, be with you, like I've said, and um, just so thankful for these privileges that we have to be together. It really is a blessing to me. Thank you for listening to me so frequently and uh, for, for being such a, a good audience and uh, giving me your attention so often. And I, I will tell you that the problem I have found with this church uh, is that there are too many people to love. And that, is, that has been my problem here. Uh, I find myself loving so many of you and wanting to spend time with so many of you and get to know so many of you better. And there are just too many, too many of you. That's my only problem here. <clears throat> So no more people here, okay? Let's don't bring anybody else in. I do want to just say one more thing real quickly before we get started. Because uh, Terry, Terry Bays said this this morning in his uh, Bible class. But if, if uh, you weren't there, you missed him just pointing out how uh, appreciative he was of Terry Keel for the work that Terry does. And I was made aware of this uh, Again, on Friday night, Friday evening, as I was up here, and Terry's up here doing his work, getting us ready behind the scenes, and uh, uh, I just want to say thank you to, to Terry for all that you do for us, keeping things running around here. Um. Of course, uh, uh, that's not to minimize the role that the others are playing, too. Larry and Charles and uh, Joey back there today working. We appreciate you guys, too. Um, so let's, uh, let's start talking about Genesis, and I'm just going to uh, take off this way today. We're not going to uh, go through every verse that's covered. I hope you're reading along in Genesis. I hope you're paying attention to the readings that we're doing, because we're going to have to center in. There's no way we can read all 50 chapters of Genesis uh, in here and actually uh, have meaningful, uh, time-appropriate conversations. So we're going to have to jump around a little bit as we go. But let me, let me begin today by asking you, what is it that makes human beings so valuable? Have you ever, uh, maybe you've been on a flight like this, but I know you've seen it in the news. Somebody's on a flight and they get sick, like, like deathly sick. It's an emergency. You know what they do with that flight? They immediately land it. Charles knows from working in the business. Yeah, they, they, they send it down to the ground as fast as they can. They could say, clear out the runway. Uh, let's, uh, let's get this person down. Let's try to save their life. They don't say, well, we've got a lot of people on board with plans. There's, uh, there's people going here and there and, and important people with important jobs. They don't do anything like that. They, they say, let's save this life. Why? I don't know how many of you have been following the news lately with the the tragic case of a girl, I may say her name wrong, Gabby Petito, something like that. And uh, she's been discovered uh, to have been murdered. Now they're looking for her uh, former boyfriend, fiance, whatever he was, uh, as a suspect. And, but the news has just been preoccupied with this. Everybody's saying, where or, or what has happened to her? How has this happened? 
And nobody ever stops and says, you know, it's just a person. What's the big deal? See, what is it that makes the human being so valuable? And in a, a sign of the confusion of our time, people actually are saying things uh, to indicate that human beings are not that valuable. Or at least that we're not more valuable than other species. Have you heard of this thing called speciesism? You ever heard of it? It's out there, speciesism. I'm going read, to read a partial definition to you. Speciesism is the assumption of human superiority leading to the exploitation of animals. Now, put me down as against exploiting animals, okay? Uh, that's not what we're getting into today. But it's the assumption of human superiority. Speciesism. Here's what one uh, PETA website says. Speciesism is a misguided belief that one species is more important than another. This toxic mindset is deeply ingrained in our society and it results in all kinds of negative consequences. Wow, this toxic mindset that one species might be more important than another. But I have to ask you, what is it that makes human beings more important than another species? And if we're all on this earth as the result of some age-old accident, random processes. Now, we're not talking about whether it's okay for a Christian to believe in evolution. We've talked about this already now. And, and uh, Christians can have different opinions about the science on these things. What you can't buy into as a Christian is that it, there's a, this whole thing is an accident and that God's hand was not in it, right? Now, if you believe that, if you believe that everything's here just by chance and that everything has just evolved over time, you have animals, you have plants, you have humans, what is it that makes human beings more valuable than anything else? I'll tell you somebody who thought about this, a guy named Ted Bundy. You know that name? One of the most notorious serial killers in the United States history. And he was tape recorded. And I don't know how they got this tape, but uh, he was tape recorded talking to one of his victims. I'm hesitant to read it to you because it's chilling. But listen to what Bundy says. Then I learned that all moral judgments are value judgments. That all value judgments are subjective, that means depending on the person, and that none can be proved to be either right or wrong. I discovered that to become truly free, truly unfettered, I had to become truly uninhibited. And I quickly discovered that the greatest obstacle to my freedom, the greatest block and limitation to it, consists in the insupportable value judgment that I was bound to respect the rights of others. I asked myself, who were these others? Other human beings with human rights? Why is it more wrong to kill a human animal than any other animal? A pig or a sheep or a steer. Is your life more to you than a hog's life to a hog? Why should I be willing to sacrifice my pleasure more for the one than for the other? Surely you would not in this age of scientific enlightenment declare that God or nature has marked some pleasures as moral or good and others as immoral or bad. 
In any case, let me assure you, my dear young lady, that there is absolutely no comparison between the pleasure I might take in eating ham and the pleasure I anticipate in raping and murdering you. Now, what's wrong with that? How do you conclude that what Ted Bundy is saying is wrong if you live in a world where everything's an accident? Where you've evolved just like the hog has evolved. Now, now let me be very clear here. I want to be very careful how I say this. I'm not contending at all that atheists are all bad people. They're not. Many of them are committed to, to good things. I'm not saying they're all sadistic like Ted Bundy. Some of you may be in here, and you're not a believer. And I'm not accusing you of being like Ted Bundy. What, what I am saying is that that viewpoint has a very difficult time logically explaining why Ted Bundy is wrong. As we talked about a, a couple of weeks ago, Francis Schaeffer said this a long time ago, there are like two stories of the universe. There's the lower story of physical and material things. There's an upper story of values, of transcendent things, of love and, and morality, of right and wrong. And, and in order to make sense of life, everybody, whether they claim to believe in God or not, they're always borrowing from this upper story. Even if they don't believe in it, they're borrowing love, they're borrowing morality. They're choosing to live according to these standards. It's the only way to have a meaningful human life. Unless, of course, you take the opposite route and you become a sociopath like Ted Bundy. And say, well, actually, no, there is no difference. And I can do whatever I want to do. But see, the problem is we all know deep down that's wrong. We know there's a problem with that. We know it's wrong to do what Ted Bundy did. How do you explain that in a world without God? I talked to a girl years ago. I was in college. She was reading some book related to, to um, I guess, something uh, gave me the inroads. I don't remember what it was, but it gave me the inroads to talk, talk to her. I invited her to, to visit with me and to, to study with me. And I reasoned through with her. She was basically an atheist. And I reasoned through with her some of these things. I said, you know, if you, if you take that route, and this is just a general, I don't even remember my words to her, but basically the argument goes, if you take that route, You've, you've entered a world where morality, you can't explain morality. It doesn't, it doesn't have any foundation to it anymore if you live in a world without God. And there's no difference then in Martin Luther King Jr. and the guy who founded the KKK. There's no difference in Hitler and Mother Teresa. Because we're all just the result of random processes. We're all the result of, of time and chance and physical things uh, that are going off in our brain, chemical reactions, but there's, there's no moral universe we're actually inhabiting. I said, so you get the choice to live in a world of love and goodness or the choice to be an animal. And she looked at me, and it is shocking to me. She said, then I choose to be an animal. I still don't know why she chose to meet with me. I think she thought I was good looking. <laughs> it's, it's not that funny, Lori. Oh, come on. That, that was, I mean, it was a little bit funny, but. But you see, that is the choice we have to make. And I appreciate at least that she was honest about it. She said, this is my choice. 
And, and uh, although I don't think she consistently lived it out, to live it out consistently is t- uh, to go the route that Ted Bundy went, even if you don't do all the things that he did. And we, we have to say, which world are we living in? Now, that, that's the foundation. I want to tell you <clears throat> that Genesis 1-2 clears up the confusion for us. God wants us to know who we are. He wants us to know what world we inhabit. And this is what these wonderful chapters do for us. They give us an identity. They give us a story. They give us a grounding. They let us know that we live in a meaningful world. And out of that meaningful world, we live with love and dignity and goodness. We live caring for others. So we can claim openly and honestly that we are speciesist and we don't we don't have to say we exploit animals or do bad things to animals to to believe that we just we just say there is a difference in human beings and other things and the difference is we have been made in the image of god now i don't have my clicker up here uh and uh oh thank you terry right when we're talking about his value here he is, walking down the aisle on time. Okay, so, so uh, specifically today, I want to just, rather than walking through all the details of the text, I want to focus on, on one basic question, and that is what does it mean to be a human being? Or as we've already said, why are human beings so valuable? You know, the human beings are the only species that actually ask that question. <laughs> that tells us something about ourselves already. Why are we wondering about this? We are always needing to know who we are. And so let me just stop before we dive into Genesis 1 and 2 again and ask you, who are you? At the deepest level, who are you? And do you know that there are a lot of people in our society today who would say to you, here's who you are. And they would be sophisticated people thinking they are representing the intelligentsia of our world. Here's who you are. You are an autonomous being. You get to choose who you are. That's the great thing about being a human is you can choose. I want you to know that there's another level of understanding for the Christian. Yes, we have choices that impact to some extent our identity, but there's a deeper level of identity for human beings. And it is that we have been made in the image of God. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God wants you to know who you are. You are his image bearers. You didn't get here by chance. You didn't get here by an accident and years and years of a random evolutionary process. You got here because God wanted you here. And he wanted you here in a special role as his, bearing his image in the world. You are not an accident. 
You're not unwanted in this world. You're not a space filler in this world. You are God's. And in the same way that we saw two weeks ago, God created this beautiful creation and he delighted in it. So in that same way, he created you. He created humanity for a special role in that special creation. And he said, this creation is mine. I delight in it and I dwell in it. He said, these human beings are mine. And I delight in them and I relate to them. They are my special ones. God's not waiting for you to become something else before you are his. You are his by virtue of creation. Now, understandably, there are people who are living apart from God, okay? And that's the invitation then to come into Christ. But in a certain sense, we can speak of you being his from creation, of me being his from creation. I am his image bearer. Even in sin, even with that marred image, I bear the image of God. The creation story, I hope you see this, the creation story is a love story. The creation story is good news for us. That God didn't wait for us to get things straightened out. He didn't wait for us to say, we've got it all together before he said, you're mine and you bear my image. Let me say a few words about what this image is. And the text doesn't necessarily specify tons for us here. So maybe we have a little bit of freedom to speculate on what the image is. I'm going to follow a guy I've mentioned to you before named John Walton, who presents four categories of the Old Testament understanding what the image of God is. You have to listen to me. I don't have this on the PowerPoint. There are four of these. Okay? One is just identity. It's just who you are at the deepest level. Now, Walton doesn't say this, but I wonder if from there we might extend that to talk a little bit about capacity. Because most of us, when we think about the image of God, we start thinking about how we're different from other beings. And like I've just pointed out, we ask self-reflective questions. We say things like, who am I? We are rational in a different way than any other being is. We are morally sensitive in a way that all other beings are not. And so, so you might think about our capacities to think certain thoughts, to be aware of certain realities, moral realities that other beings are not. That's, that's our identity connected to our capacities. That's number one. Number two is relationship. Particularly, we are made for relationship with God. Do you notice that when God creates the human being, he does something he hasn't done to any other creature? He speaks directly to them. The first time happens right here, and we'll see other times as we go further in Genesis. In fact, we'll see other, other occasions of God speaking to humanity throughout the Bible. But he says to them, be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth. God's talking to the human beings. He doesn't do that to any other creatures. Why? Because we are made for a relationship with God. And to some extent, we could say that's connected to the image of God. Now, these last two, I think, may be actually more uh, precise in terms of what the text is presenting to us. Okay, You've got identity. You've got relationship, you get to uh, what we might call substitute or presence. Here's the thing. In, in the Old Testament world, in antiquity, the king would sometimes be viewed as the image of God, where he was, the ruler would be. And when that king wasn't present in a certain area, you know, he ruled over vast territory, say, and there'd be some territory way over here, some territory way over there, he'd set up statues. And they would be known as the image of the king, 
right there. And it's very possible that here, in this text, when we get the garden, God doesn't set up any... Now remember how we've talked about Eden being, Terry was talking about this in the, in the study today, Eden being a sacred space. Or, or we talked about the cosmos being a sacred space. And uh, in chapter 1, in chapter 2, you get it maybe more located in Eden particularly, where, where God, maybe if you have the holy place of our cosmos, the most holy place in Eden, God indwells that space, right? But he doesn't put any idol there in that temple-like space. Instead, he puts us. And do you know that the word used for image in this text is the same word you get used for idol in other parts of the Old Testament? <laughs> it makes us uncomfortable even to speak about ourselves as idols. But God placed us in his temple as his images. We are the only thing in all creation that gets to represent God to the world. We are the image bearers. And that presence substitute idea goes right, right along with the fourth category, and that's our function. We are known as image bearers in, in relation to what we do. Do you notice what it, God tells them to do? We need to be very attentive to this. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion. Rule over everything. Basically, he tells the human beings to rule the world. And we need to think carefully about this because this is not just saying, boy, it would be nice if we had a garden. It'd be nice if we owned a farm and we'd try to rule it well. Or, man, I should be nicer to my pets. <laughs> Maybe you should. But that's not the primary thing that's being stated in this text. What this is, is a dignifying, a, a lifting up of human beings to a royal place and telling them to be in charge of everything that God has created. We are to order it. We are to, to regulate it. We are to protect it and care for it. We are made to rule and reign with God. We are vice regents with God, co-rulers with God over the world. This is what he's made us to do. And oftentimes in, in uh, antiquity, kings and, would also be priests. You have the kings and, and priest, uh, priestly functions going together. And it looks like here in this text we have Adam functioning as a priest as well as a kingly ruler. Let me skip down here uh, and show you how this works out in, in, in chapter 2. Verse, look at verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Do you know that those two terms are, are like worship terms, at least related to worship? The first one has to do with worship activities. The second one has to do with Levitical duties guarding the temple or the sanctuary. So he's not just telling him to go out and be a farmer. He's telling him to do the activities of worship, to be a priest, to be a king, to be a ruler. This is what humanity has been made for. To function as priests and kings with God. And now we rule and reign with him. Back then it was sheep and goats and, and whatever else was around. But today we have to think about everything else. We have to think about ruling over computers. 
and automobiles and planes and businesses and schools. And we have to think about what does it mean for us to do that work as God's co-regents, as the ones who represent God to the world, who are having dominion at the, at the uh, commissioning of God. What does it mean to do our works as the image bearers? See, I know when, when Megan takes care of the kids at school like she does so carefully, I know it embarrasses Megan for me to mention her at all, but, but uh, I'm just uh, thinking of her right now. When she does that, she's doing that not just, oh, well, i got to try to do a good job and get a paycheck. She's actually doing what God created her to do. She's bringing order and function and wholeness and help and, 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 and communicating the presence of God to little children who need her. This is what God put us in the world to do. And we can go on and on talking about different ones with your different roles. Those of you, you mothers who are at home with kids, do you understand that what you're doing is a priestly role? When the Apostle Paul talks later about, about good works for a widow who, who should be supported by the church, he mentions, he mentions raising children right, right alongside of, of uh, having washed the feet of the saints and things like that. You see, this is, this is bearing the image of God and ruling and reigning and serving with him. This is what we're called to do. Let me just show you this in the rest of the Bible very quickly. You see, this is where the Bible ends. This is where it starts, and this is where it ends. Revelation 22. And night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Do you know that our eternal destiny is to rule and reign. It's not to sit on clouds and play harps. I don't know what all it's going to look like, but it's going to be active service to God, ruling and reigning. And right now in this world, that, that's what we're preparing for. Romans 5, 17. Death come, this is the whole passage comparing Adam to Jesus. Death came through Adam. Much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Do you know that? We're made for ruling and reigning in life. Now, this is not a passage related to, to reigning exactly, but, but it makes you think about our future in a, in a related way. In, in 1 Corinthians, where the people were going to court against each other and they weren't looking to, to the church to help, Paul says, or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try any trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? Don't you know that? You didn't know that? Most of us didn't know that, did we? We're to judge angels. How much more than matters pertaining to this life? See, we've got to learn who we are in God's world. We've got to learn the dignity that he's given to us and then seek to live out of that. This picture we get in Genesis 1-2 to is a beautiful picture of God and human beings. God's not re remote, way off somewhere, sending down orders from headquarters. God comes and lives among us. Human beings are not just slaves made to meet the God's needs. Human beings are made to rule and reign with God. This is a beautiful calling. If we're going to appreciate this text, we have to see that it's about us. That God, just as he breathed life into Adam and Eve, he breathes life into us. Into every baby that's born into this world, God breathes life. And he says, now come and do my work with me. That's what God wants for his people in the world. Okay. We're just going to jump now 
and uh, talk about one more point here when we talk about what it means to be human. Let me go back to, to verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. And this is just a, a place where we need to stop because it's come up and it's very relevant in our society. We need to say that both genders are made in the image of God. And the first thing I would say to you that we just want to affirm as Christians is that gender is a good gift of God. I looked up online how many genders are there now. Found out there are 63. That's what it said. Olivia and my girls watched recently a, a Cinderella, a, a recent Cinderella musical movie. And it turns out they had a genderless fairy godmother on there now. Because that is what we all need to see, isn't it? Now, I want to I comment before I say anything else and say that uh, we need to recognize people have real struggles. And we don't need to be compassionless. And many times people are not making up their gender confusion. They're really, they're really struggling with it. And the church needs to be a place where people can confess that and talk about it, to at least to some people. And we don't need to act like this is all make-believe and that nobody's really struggling with this. They just want to, they just want to go do things that are, seem absurd to most of the world. Okay, so, so let's just say from the outset we want to be people of compassion and understanding. But at the same time, we cannot be bullied by a social agenda, a political agenda, to, to make everybody, Christian or non-Christian, accept this as if this is the way things are supposed to be, because it's not. Gender, male and female, is God's gift to us. And taking aside the confusion that's there, that people legitimately experience, uh, we need to affirm and stand up for God's gift. And here's the reason why, in the midst of all the rage today, to let everybody choose whatever gender they want to be, whatever they feel like on the inside, here's the reason why we have to stand and say, no, they're two genders, and they're good things. It's because we are made in the image of God. And the image of God is seen in male and female. And God gets a say in his creation. He is the maker. And he knew what he was doing. And he still knows what he's doing. And so we pay attention to him. If we were going to explore this further, and there are a lot of things we could talk at length about, um, maybe sometime in a class setting we should, but the Judeo-Christian worldview, you see, it, it affirms and has always affirmed that creation is good and that matter matters. That means your body matters. It means God speaks not just on the inside, but he speaks in bodies. All right? So we can't just tell God, I know you gave me this body, but I don't think that's the one I'm going to stay with. Because God gets a say in his creation, and his creation is good. Now, I don't minimize the pain and the struggle that people feel, and there are, we have to think 
about how to handle these things sensitively and charitably. But we have to still say God gets to say. Gender is a good thing. Look, look uh, at the end of chapter 2 here. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now you see, this translation, uh, you may have heard the old King James help meet. That's for you, Boyd. Boyd told me the other night in our EHR study that he notices that my sermons are, are well prepared, but he preferred that I occasionally mention the older translations. So uh, uh, where are you, Boyd? I can't even find you. Uh, there you are. Yeah, so that's for you, Boyd. Help meet is the King James Version. The old King James Version says help meet. It doesn't say help mate, right? It's a helper fit for him, a helper meet for him. That's what, the, that's what the term means. It's not like God was looking down at Adam and said, Adam, you know what? I've given you a lot of work to do. It's going to be hard. And when you come home in the evening, you're going to need a clean space to come home to. And you might even need a foot massage. Here's your helpmate. That's not what this is at all. Do you know that word for helper there? It's used of God in the Old Testament. God is my helper. It's not a, a, a minimizing kind of term. It's not a put down. God made both genders, and together they reflect the image of God. If you just have men, you don't have the whole image of God. If you just have women, you don't have the whole image of God. Male and female, he created them in the image of God. And so we don't need to buy into any... You notice that he doesn't say men... You, uh, earlier in the chapter, he doesn't say men have dominion over the women. He takes men and women and says have dominion over creation. And women are co-rulers with men in the world. So I want you to know, ladies here, that you are my co-workers in Christ. That's the way I view you. You are my co-workers in Christ. This is the way God made you. To be rulers over his creation with men. Well, I think I need to close. I've talked long enough. Let me, there's so much more we could say about this stuff. But I, I want to just jump to the end here. Man, you're getting marriage issues there we could get into. But let's, let's jump to the end and, and just notice that he says, And the man and his wife are both naked and were not ashamed. That sounds weird, doesn't it? Um, Everybody thinks that's weird. Here's an idea for you, okay? Just, just a thought. And this is not original to me. But what if, what if they were naked and not ashamed because in God's presence they were radiant and glowing? I thought that was kind of a stretch when I first heard it too. But if you think about it. Think about what, what happened to Moses when he was in God's presence. Do you remember that? When he came down from the mountain, what would happen? Had to put something over his head, didn't he? Because he was glowing. What happened when Jesus on the mountain was in God's presence? What happened? A glow, a transfiguration. What if part of the reason why they were naked and not ashamed was because in God's presence, walking with him as they did in the garden, they were glowing? What if that original state showed their beauty and magnificence in a way we don't get to see? 
Because we are made to live in the presence of God. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing God has called us to. C.S. Lewis captures it well. I know I quote C.S. Lewis a lot, but he's just so quotable. Listen to what what he says in his book, The Weight of Glory. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. He's basically saying, because we're so dignified as image bearers, we get to choose a direction. And we're either being made more and more into God's glory, or we're becoming something terrible. It is in light of these overwhelming possibilities... It is with the awe and circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilization, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. Do you know why human beings are so valuable? It's because we are the image bearers of God. And when we interact with each other, we don't just see, oh, there's another annoying person. We say, there's an immortal. There's a creature who hopefully is becoming glorious, made more and more and more into the glory of God. This is the beautiful calling that Genesis 1 and 2 presents to us. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you, thank you for the good news of the creation story, that you love us like you do. That you have given us the privilege of bearing your image in this world, of being rulers and kings and priests on your behalf in the world. Show us, Lord, how to live into this wonderful identity. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.